You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Things have been going around the same as before, and it's sort of the same discussion over and over, which is honestly why Indrani, Michael, and I are much more about action than we are about the talking, and let's keep talking about it, and we're sort of like, where's the physical action on the ground? Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Twist Water podcast. One message is, here's the problem, here's where the holes are. Two, this is how we can solve the problem, and three, these are the tools, techniques, and cultural innovations that we need to develop if we're going to effectively address the problem in real time, because we can't wait. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Lauren Enright and Michael Stanley-Gallisdorfer as my guests. Where are these gaps? Where are these places where the conventional industries or the corporations or the engineers are actually missing out and not to their demise or their detriment, but we're actually wanting to aid and help them? Lauren is the founder of Axum Climate. We've got to fight apathy and we've got to fight fear and anxiety. So we can't fight climate change. What we can do is we can work with it. And Michael is a water sustainability strategist. You've already heard on that microphone by the excellent episode 17 of season two. To solve this problem, we can't do it theoretically or analytically. We have to just take risks and see what happens. Together with Indrani Pal, Lauren and Michael will lead a session day at the upcoming American Geophysical Union meeting in Chicago titled Adapting to Climate Change, Innovative Solutions for Building Water Resilience to Long-Term Meteorological and Hydrological Change. If you've followed the series of COP conferences that aim to take on climate change challenges, you've probably noticed a difference between the latest COP27 and the previous 26. So far, we mostly talked about climate change mitigation, and hence, it was much of a carbon topic. COP27 happened to be different. For the first time, the focus was on climate change adaptation. And in that new realm, much of the focus is switching to water. Why so? Well, because climate change is increasing variability in the water cycle, thus causing extreme weather events, lowering the predictability of water availability, decreasing water quality and threatening sustainable development, biodiversity or simply the enjoyment of the human rights to safe drinking water and sanitation worldwide for the ones that are blessed with it. Those would be just some of the consequences, but in a nutshell we can say climate change will be felt through water. So what do we do about it? That's where climate change adaptation kicks in. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just, just between quotation marks, have to implement existing technology and fast track the path to market for the right innovations. It's not because we start deploying climate change adaptation that we accept our fate and stop with the mitigation efforts. Both can and should work hand in hand. But if we accept that, by now, a good chunk of the effects of climate change can't be reversed for a long time, we better leverage our water knowledge to limit how much it will affect populations across the globe. That is Lauren, Michael and Indrani's proposal to the world, kickstarting actionable innovative solutions for the world to start adapting and protecting every crew member of Spaceship Earth. If you like what you hear today, you'll probably enjoy their session at the American Geophysical Union meeting in Chicago as they schedule an entire day on Friday to light the climate change adaptation topic with fresh angles and new approaches. And for today's conversation, if you feel more people shall hear it, you have that power. Share it with a friend, a colleague or your LinkedIn network. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. 
You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Michael. Welcome, Lauren. Welcome back, Michael, to that microphone. I'm really happy to have the two of you together with me today. You're two-on-one, so please be gentle and kind with me. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thanks for having us on. Well, also... There's a bit of an agenda and a reason for the both of you to be together with me today. It's that you will be featured in a session, in a conference, pretty time soon. And we're going to go a bit deeper into that in the deep dive. So for now, let me just use that as a teaser. Let's start by getting to discover you a bit. So Lauren, you're the founder and CEO of Axiom. And my first question is pretty straightforward. What is Axiom? Axiom is a water and water risk consultancy. We're motivated by basically strategizing innovative and integrated experiences for the general public to really understand water-related climate issues and technologies firsthand. That is the pitch. Now, if I go a bit more in-depth on your website, I've seen the picture of a kayak. What has that to do with the strategizing? In essence, I really believe that tangible experiences create memories, whether positive or negative, in the brain. And these moments and experiences actually translate and create receptivity for actually a unique understanding. And I basically translate that understanding into an unrelatable subject like climate, like water and technologies. And in this case, the three of us are really extremely passionate about climate and water. And that's what essentially I'm trying to do with my startup is linking water and an ice-based actually experiences to climate and water technologies. And how did you come to that? What's the backstory? It's been a long road, probably ever since I was like five years old, but I can jump a little bit into what happened in my 20s. And I got my master's in maritime trade and maritime security, which led me to studying climate change and freshwater related issues in the Arctic. And really from a macro point of view, as well as drilling down into more micro issues. And from there, I then converged my love of the outdoors, specifically mountaineering and watershed issues into forming this startup that is where I am today. Indrani, which is your third person in that conference, works with you at Axiom. Am I right with that? Yeah, Indrani's worked with me part-time for the last like year and a half. We met through sort of serendipitous events. And then as I've gotten contracts in the last say 18 months, I've like, I've pulled her in. Well, we're going to go a bit deeper into what you do with Axiom probably because that's linked to your conference. But right before I have to welcome you back, Michael, you've been the kind of voice where I'm jealous as a host because you have more a radio voice than I have a radio voice. So welcome back. You were with us by season two, episode 17. And for the ones which have missed that one, which is a pity because it's one of these episodes which I keep referring to regularly because we covered nature-based solutions, we covered how to be close to a river and how that refreshes the mind, which is very close to the topic, I guess, we will be discussing today. But for the people who would have missed you, and honestly, that's pretty hard if you've ever crossed LinkedIn, 
what would be your elevator pitch to yourself? Thank you again for having me back on the show, Anthony. And let's just recap season two, episode 17 briefly. What's the pitch? Well, I talk water for business. And I talk water for business and government in such a way that regular people can understand what it's worth, its value and importance. And what does that boil down to in real everyday terms? Well, investing in nature-based solutions, engineering, science, business, sustainability, ESG, etc., they have real value. And we know they have real value because of how we measure return on investment. So when you invest in nature-based solutions and invest in resilient water infrastructure, you know, ways to work with water effectively in cities, you get about four to one return on investment. That's $4 for every $1 spent. We know that from data from the USA, from the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. So what does that mean for the bigger picture? Well, you know, if it works for the public sector, it probably works for the private sector too. And that's really what I do. You know, I like to help connect water solution providers to water problems and solve them to add value to people's lives and to the world. I've seen that you're working with Desalytics, which got me curious because that sounds like the beginning of a new track for you. I don't want you to spoil everything because I know that you've gave me some behind the scenes and I don't want to share the behind the scenes. That wouldn't be very nice from me. But is there something you can reveal? Not so much. I mean, I... I would leave I it function. alone, no problem. <laughs> I mean, I could say briefly that, you know, Walid and I understand water from a broad scale and kind of operating independently as just an affiliate. I think about ways to solve water because just like Lauren was talking about, the way to solve climate is inextricably linked to water. And that's really what brought us all together because we care about this. This is something that matters and it's something that also has value. And not just personal value, but economic value. So I call it a triple win. You know, we've got value for the world, we've got personal value, and we also have business value. So we're at the verge of a new world of water-based values. Well, actually, you're offering me the perfect transition because I was wondering, I've met you physically, Lauren. I've met you digitally, Michael. I don't know what brought the two of you together. Apparently, it's linked to the value of water, but maybe you can... Explain me a bit more. Michael, do you want to start or? Lauren, I'll just start briefly and say, I think one day you said, let's talk. And so we talked <laughs> and then we went from there. <laughs> I had a pressing question that I knew needed actually Michael's expertise. And this was probably about two years ago, maybe even two and a half years ago, where I called you and I'm just like, Michael, and you just spat out the most like intricate, though succinct information for me to jot down, okay, this would be my next step. And I took it to heart, even though, you know, you're like, do you want to go on a next step? And I'm like, no, let's hang there for a second. But you wowed me by how you articulated information so succinctly. And we've sort of followed each other ever since. And I consider almost like Michael and Johnny and I all mavericks in the field. Like we're all coming from very varied ways and point of view. So we're not just like, hey, we're jumping in it. We have this one specific approach to it, which I very much valued in Michael and in Johnny. But <laughs> Michael, tell me what you think of Andrani and I. I think you're great. I'm very grateful that you put up with me because... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm okay. I could be a difficult person to deal with as long as I have a clear focus and a very clear objective, which you gave me. You said, I got to get this thing done. How do we do it? Then I'm hyper focused like an animal, like a hound. I know what I'm doing. But <laughs> if I don't have constant reminders to stay on track and I'm left to my own devices, I need handling, like just to protect me from the world, the world from me, and to keep me in line with whatever the world needs me to be in line with. So what do I think about our collaboration? I think that we bring a real lot of unique value to the water sector because we're not trying to solve problems in the way that people traditionally would solve them. We're not sitting down and saying, well, this is what we have. Let's use this to get this thing done. Let's solve this problem with these known things. We're just imagining how we could solve it. And then we're starting with the end, essentially, and then looking to fill in the gaps. So we know that we want to get this thing done. Like We want to make sure that this vineyard has enough water or something. Then we imagine the kinds of technologies and people that will need to be in place and what the principal or owner or client or whoever needs. And then we see what exists. And then we try to fill it in. What doesn't exist? Well, maybe we can build it or find someone to develop it or maybe someone's out there. So that's what's unique about how we approach these problems. I, I, <laughs> I do what they tell me to do, and I get it done, and we use our creativity in combination with our analytical ability and the ability to communicate the message to solve the problem at a reasonable price and then communicate the value of that solution to the client and to the world. And that's kind of how I've been thinking of our work for the American Geophysical Union conference coming up. So you mentioned the American Geophysical Union conference. You mentioned vineyards, which by extension makes me think of water resilience. And I guess there's a connection between those two elements. So what is that session that you will be holding at the AGU? What is it all about? What can people expect from what you will be presenting. AGU, as you mentioned, stands for the American Geophysical Union. It's been in, I believe, incorporation since 1920. And primarily, it's a nonprofit studying atmospheric, ocean, space, planetary, basically issues. And it's evolving around science, their research, their outcomes. And essentially, just this year, they've opened it up into innovations, which, lucky for us, we're essentially wanting those larger point of views being brought in apart from just the scientists. Even though we extremely value the scientists and we ourselves have backgrounds in science, we then are wanting to pull in, which we are friends and colleagues from the finance you know, industry, from the psychology sphere, from industries. And this essentially is where we're really wanting to focus in on these innovations and these actually nature-based solutions, hardware, software across the board, and what these outcomes will be. The fun thing about AGU is the amount of people that actually attend. So it's, I believe there's 130,000 membership across the board internationally, and about 25,000 people will attend in Chicago. So it's not necessarily just this 500 person event, but it's definitely large and we know that. And so we wanted to say, okay, let's gather our minds and be able to come up with a session that was accepted months ago, it was probably four or five months ago, that then we tackled and we said, let's start inviting people and people wanted to join. 
But so if we go to the bone of the session, what's going to be inside? So in essence, the session is going to be primarily parsed off in four different panels. The start is going to be about climate risk resilience, the opener of the day, looking at how we got here and why we got here. We all sort of know that story, but in essence, it's nice to start and do a little intro on that. We're going to bring in topics such as, is data analytics taking us in climate risk resiliency? We're looking at like where are specific companies leading and why they're slow or why they're actually fast to adopt those specific solutions. So we have some leading name industries that you guys would know, you know, folks in the industry that I'm sure your listeners would know, as well as jumping into the second panel is around finance, looking at how the stock market is relating to water risks, as well as climate and reinvesting, divesting your own portfolio specific to fossil fuel emissions, specific to water-related issues. And this gets into a little bit of a gray area because there's not as much, obviously, research in this area. So it's a more fun, I guess, like topic to, to dive into within this specific session. The third session, as I'm remembering, is gamification. So the three of us really believe in, obviously, these experiences, not just physical, like I've described, going out in the mountains and learning about stuff, but within the home. So looking at like, how can a family understand their own water efficiencies and water management within their own home playing a game? It's a digital game on the computer that we're going to showcase. And then the fourth panel of the day is around nature-based solutions. And those will be tailored towards looking at specific issues, so in sediment rise, in river flow rise, and looking at specific tributaries around the United States, as well as around the world. So how much of a terrible shortcut would it be if I was to say that you're trying to tackle water resilience with a fresh angle, a fresh mind, just because the traditional way is on one hand boring, on the other hand not efficient? Yeah, I think you're spot on. Change comes from the outside. <laughs> So who else but us three to do the thing that no person in their right mind would do and say, let's try something new that's high risk, that has a lot of potential, that would not be something that you might hear in an engineering design discussion. You might not hear this in your standard sort of academic colloquium, because in those conversations, the same people are always at the table. And what we're doing is we're bringing together people from different areas who have different perspectives on water. One of the things we're also doing is we're putting together sort of a pre-panel, like a primer that includes a lot of the elements as an introduction to the main session on Friday as a way to help people get into the concepts, to get into the conversation and think about it throughout the week. And what this does is it really helps people who are within established disciplines and domains to see how their work fits into this emerging landscape for water, like this emerging new world of water where the old solutions just don't work because change is progressing so rapidly. And it gives us a chance to really focus on solutions and not just problems. And that leads directly into things like the knowledge we gain from data analytics, and that will inform things like deciding where to implement nature-based solutions. Because as we've seen recently, you know, river flows are down throughout Europe and parts of the U.S., So that's playing havoc with our water supply. Let me take my devil's advocate hat for a second. I love the program. I really love the pitch. I've listened to you. I've read what you sent me. I'm wondering, isn't it a bit too broad? What's the key message? If you have right now to give me like, like 
three take-home messages from the people that will be spending the day with you, what would it be? I'll jump in. By nature, we knew it was broad, but we also know that climate and climate tech and water involving is a huge industry and is a huge issue across the board. We actually got authors from all different sort of industries and we had to turn, sadly, people sort of away and down, unfortunately, just because they weren't really fitting in with our topic. So we are trying to really narrow in on a very large topic in essence, but that's also something that we're wanting to glean and honestly understand where are these gaps Where are these places where the conventional industries or the corporations or the engineers are actually missing out and not to their demise or their detriment, but we're actually wanting to aid and help them? Because I think, like you said, Antoine, things have been going around the same as before. And it's sort of the same discussion over and over, which is honestly why Indrani, Michael, and I are much more about action than we are about the talking and let's keep talking about it and we're sort of like where's the physical action on the ground the less talking the less writing about birch whereas we want to actually see that action and i think we all know that action comes from more the general public really understanding what these climate issues are in relation to water in just essence of saying oh my gosh there's there's larger amount of rainfall that's going to affect the polar vortex let's actually spell those things out to the public so then they can actually really attach themselves and physically be able to say oh my gosh i will need a specific device or this technology and be able to hold that and own that rather than say like a utility take it into their own hands it's the big challenge that we're facing in presenting a topic like this that's so important and so big is being able to communicate it effectively with all sorts of people and we know that in the water sector right now there's just this huge communications problem there's a huge gap between people's awareness an understanding of water and that of the professional sector. People just don't see water. They don't know what's there. So what this session does is it helps all sorts of people gain access to it. So think of it as the big picture of water. Not quite water 101, but more like a big picture water practicum where, as Lauren said, we're going to do something about this. So one message is, here's the problem. Here's where the holes are. Two, this is how we can solve the problem. And three, these are the tools, techniques, and cultural innovations that we need to develop if we're going to effectively address the problem in real time. Because we can't wait. You know, we can't wait for utilities, which are going to operate on a slower model. And we can't necessarily wait for government, which could take forever. We need to give people choices now, like Lauren said, to solve their own problems. And this is a way to do that to start the process. If I take your very well articulated three steps, the problem is something we've discussed quite regularly on that microphone in the sense that fighting climate change has a clear message, it's zero carbon. If you go to zero carbon, you fight climate change. If you go into climate change adaptation, climate change mitigation saying anyways, it's going to happen in a certain fashion, we can limit how much it happens, but we have to adapt to the consequences of that. Then we've talked about that as well. It has a lot to do with water because there is this quite empty sentence, but which sums it up still, which is if climate change is a shark, water is its teeth. Once we've said that, we don't have said much, but still 
it explains a bit the problem. But I think you're fully right in the sense that awareness of the problem is not yet at the level where we could just say, let's skip that because everybody knows it. No, everybody doesn't know it. So it's really reassuring that get the people from there. That's the part I fully get. Then you're presenting the solution and the technologies. And here, again, I'm playing the devil's advocate today. That's my role. How much do we need to come with new solutions? And how much is it just about enforcing the ones we do know are working today, but nobody dares to do it? And I think that's part of it. I think we've noticed that there is that lack of deployment and whether it's a marketing issue, whether it's a barrier to financing or getting, shall I say, a sales force behind every single climate related technology out there. We all know why electric vehicles, we all know why solar and wind are taking off. They're meteor type of investments. And I think the return on investment specifically to get into the finance side of it is just very tangible. And I think it all sort of circulates around and around going, what is this value of water when, you know, we need it for our survival, we need it for practically everything we do and come into contact in the day. So it's essentially like our lowest common denominator among our human race, though we're not ironically (laughs) able to value it. And I think that's sort of the trick. And that's part of where I'm interested in. I think where Michael and Androni and I are trying to go, where do we fit into trying to understand where these technologies and where our behaviors are lacking in trying to come up with better solutions? Because right now we're sort of just seeing, again, like I said, prior in the podcast, just it's over and over. It's sort of the same thing. And I don't mean to say we want to like shock an audience or shock the public. I think it's actually really disseminating information through ways that the public is actually used to. It's a way to help the public connect on a action-based level, on a very emotional level. What comes to mind is a line from David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross, which is AIDA, attention interest, decision, action. So we're calling attention to this. We're saying, pay attention. This is interesting. You can decide to use these technologies and these systems. And when I think about gamification, you know, you can change your behaviors by having fun. Fun is a positive reinforcement. And that leads to action. You know, it leads to real action that you could take in your life. And think of it like this. If a child is playing a game, that child's behavior will lead to influences on the family's behavior because we all know how persistent children are. I've got three kids myself and Christmas is coming up and they want presents. So specifically touching on gamification, it is a very strong way to create behavioral change with respect to water and also to create awareness because the concept and focus of the game is water awareness in some cases, saving water, being aware of water in your environment by directing attention. So looping this back around, Yeah, we're not trying to like shock and awe. We're just saying it's here. And when it comes to solutions, yes, there are extant solutions. It's just the market requires education. You know, market facilitation education is critical to the business case for emerging water technologies. Ways to share clear, coherent, plain language value propositions that make people feel comfortable with their choices. And that will lead to the kind of change that helps us all that triple win once again for environment, for the individual and for society. There's this element of gamification and psychology which comes regularly in in what you've shared so far. And that was also something which caught my attention in your, I repeat, excellent pitch to the conference. (laughs) You're calling to climate psychologists and that's 
the first time ever I saw that concept or or even occupation or job. I don't know exactly. What is a climate psychologist? I'll jump in. I would say a climate psychologist is a professional who can actually attribute people's grief of the planet to their own personal life, which might be extremely intuitive on a human's sort of internal sensories, but it's probably twofold at where psychology lies within looking at climate and these environmental challenges. I think the general public is definitely getting more and more stressed as there's like an uptick in water-related issues. We can name out fire, hurricane, just like th those kind of Washington Post media, like, ah, th things are going on crazy. And it's, but when that happens, things sort of neutralize. So, oh, it's another hurricane. Oh, it's another I don't want to say the other side of it from what's been on recently in the news that's not climate related, but the general public becomes very neutralized to the situation at hand. It's sort of by our human nature to feel that sense of just normalcy in our minds. And I think where people are leaning towards is becoming actually more stressed in their own specific community at what's going on or them being pressured to feel like they need to purchase a specific device or specific vehicle you know in essence because they're being pressured financially or obviously from health related reasons so i feel like nature has a lot to teach us at the end of the day and if we can slow down and learn from it but i mean that's sort of a long-winded answer as to why a climate psychologist is actually really you know necessary at this point in our lives i think michael you mentioned ida as a framework which is a framework which is appealing to our psychology as well it's like lauren said people are starting to feel the emotional effects of whatever they perceive climate change to be and that's because there's this constant alert signaling in the media because people respond to alerts And that's what a lot of headlines about climate are, you know, rivers are running dry, fields are withering. These are scary things and facts are hard and these are facts. So we have scary things backed up by hard facts and people are getting anxious and that's not good. And they're getting anxious. Let's think about, you know, what just happened for the past few years. They're getting anxious on top of COVID anxiety. So what does a climate psychologist do And how does it connect to the AIDA model, the AIDA model of adoption? It gives people a way to make choices and take actions. Because when people can make choices and take actions, they're self-actualized and they feel good doing this. And this is a way to mitigate stress. It basically gets them to chill out when they can take actions because they now have choices that can lead to change in their lives that help them to deal with these big problems that they felt disempowered towards before, like climate. And water is the way to do that. We covered the psychology, we covered the awareness, we covered a bit your different approach to it. Something which sounds interesting in your approach to me as well is that you want to go and lead with real-world examples and real case studies. I know you will probably not want to spoil the entire session right now, but if you had to tease me with one of these real-life examples, can you share me maybe one each? Sure, I'll jump in. So one example I can give is a weather monitoring sort of like it's around weather monitoring and looking at the uptick in water related disasters specifically over the UK and this is actually in regards to security so looking at it from a national security level and we have a featured speaker 
I won't reveal her name, but she was the assistant general at the UN, and she's extremely delighted to speak about this specific technology. So we've had n numerous discussions at how it would be deployed and why it would be deployed and what are sort of the necessary steps that it would take, if that's sort of along the line of your question. I can give other examples, but let me know if I've answered that one correctly. That's a good example. If you have more I'm happy to take more. Michael, do you want to jump in or I can Sure. Keep going? I'll jump in on the other side. And when I say the other side, what do I mean? I mean, once we know what kind of water-related disasters we are experiencing with higher and higher frequency, we can deploy solutions effectively in a targeted fashion. We can optimize our decision-making to solve the problems. And the specific real-world example I bring up is that we have a, a real-world renowned gentleman who pretty much is the originator of nature-based solutions for river design. And when we think about how rivers are affected by changes in water availability related to climate change, we're not just thinking about how to restore rivers or help them come back to life. We're thinking about how to keep them alive. So nature-based solutions to potential you know, river flooding or drought could allow rivers to maintain certain areas of key habitat and protect critical infrastructure. And even if we restore floodplains, increase river aquifer storage, which increases local water availability. What does that mean in real terms? If you design rivers in line with natural principles using natural materials like logs, trees, intact floodplains, you can say here is where we've had problems with river flooding or drought in the past. We're going to target our natural design to either increase water availability by improving riparian zone function in areas of drought or creating more stable banks that reflect, say, natural accumulations of wood where there's more flooding. And it allows us to deploy that solution effectively with knowledge to start because we can't make the right choices if we don't know where the problems are and how bad they are first. And this helps us save money because we don't have tons of money to waste. So using nature-based solutions for river design in flood and drought-prone areas based upon our awareness, which Lauren mentioned earlier, this awareness of water-related climate disaster. You're mentioning how we have to understand the problem first. Let me try to get that one right. What is the number one key topic problem? Is it that we have to fight climate change or is it that we have to fight our slowness to adapt to climate change? Oh, I could say, Lauren, may I feel this one first? Step in, please do. Okay. I would say that what we're looking at here is we've got to fight apathy and we've got to fight fear and anxiety. So we can't fight climate change. What we can do is we can work with it. And the way that we work with it is by overcoming our barriers to action. So the big point is take action. You can do it. Fight the fear of the unknown because to solve this problem, we can't do it theoretically or analytically. We have to just take risks and see what happens and see what works and what doesn't. But taking risk in that field usually goes with the right incentives. Do we have the right setup of incentives in place so that we would dare to take the jump? I think so. And I'm going to refer back to, I guess, sort of water intelligence systems, you know, water sensing systems, like any sort of predictive systems or descriptive systems that allow us to understand when, where, why, and how water-related disasters could occur. What that does for us is because, you know, let's think about a more practical example, floodplain mapping. So floodplain mapping, maps were made maybe using data that's 
I don't know how old now, maybe 20, 50 years old, who knows how old it is, but it, it, it no longer works. With better intelligence, we can say, don't build here. The incentive for the private sector, for the insurance and reinsurance industry is look here, we can tell you we're not to insure houses or, in, or businesses. And that will shape the investment landscape. And it has value because it protects companies from risk. In the public sector, it helps the government create policies that are effective that allow for the private sector to invest safely, thus creating a stronger economy. So those are all kind of high-level perspectives on where the value comes from and why the risk is worth it, but it's there. Let me stay on your example, which is a very good example, I guess, with a flood plain. What I'm trying to understand is that on that microphone some weeks ago, I had a discussion with Nick Shufro from the Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration, and he was sharing how only... 9 million insurance policies are taken in the U.S. for flood. So everybody sees the news. Everybody sees that extreme climate events are going to happen with an increased repetition and increased risk of happening every year. And still, it sounds like the incentive is not strong enough for people to move. So how do you move people and how can you succeed in moving people here when apparently federal programs struggle? Okay, let's start out with the basics. People avoid pain and move towards pleasure or ease. If we know that an area that was previously safe from floods in a city or wherever is now highly prone to floods because of shifting rainfall patterns, more extreme river flows, you know, very sharp hydrographs, you know, big peaks and flood flows. Insurance companies won't insure them, one, which means that their house won't get rebuilt or fixed after a flood. And two, you know, banks won't lend for new builds. So those are two sources of pain, negative affect. And so people will move away from that towards areas that work. You know, a historical case would be looking at the old city of New Orleans in the USA and Louisiana. The old city was built in areas that were not subjected to flooding. And only after the Corps of Engineers canalized and controlled the Mississippi River did we start to see all this development in the low parishes. And that's what led to the problems that we experienced with Hurricane Katrina, all that flooding. You know, those levees weren't guaranteed for that kind of storm. That's how we see change. You know, we see behavioral change through creating incentives for people to move, build your house here, or create high-density residential buildings here, and pain. You can't get insurance, and the government won't protect you. And so people will make their choices based upon those two, two poles of human affect. If I take the headlines of your conference, you're aiming at the um, ESG investors. So they could be the indirect incentive I was referring to, because if they only finance and promote the projects which go in the right direction, then indirectly you have your kind of incentive given by the market this time. So what is the key take-home message that you're preparing and casting for those ESG finance people? Lauren, do you wish to begin this one? I have a thought that comes right to mind right now. Sure. Yeah, you can jump in. I, have, I can follow up as well. With respect to ESG investors, sustainable funds, what do these changes in human behavior do with respect to water? Well, it makes your investments more reliable because the last thing that you want to deal with as a fund manager is the risk of stranded assets. And that's one thing that we encounter when people try to get into these crazy high growth funds that, you know, there's, they're high risk and they're high risk for a reason and they're becoming more risky as water becomes more and more uncertain. 
So what's the take-home message for sustainable investments, ESG investors, ESG staff at corporations? You want to put your money where water will be in the right amount at the right time and won't be at the wrong times. Places where it's not going to flood. Places where you do have reliable multiple sources of water, atmospheric, ground, and surface water because it means that your portfolios are stabilized and you can provide a more reliable return for your investors and business runs on reliability and that's better for all of us. Lauren? Yeah, and, ju- and just to jump in, I think ESG by nature has become a nuanced term because by nature, a lot of people have thrown it under the bus or said it's greenwashing and yeah, it could be myriad or somewhere in between because of articles, you know, specifically say in The Economist written about it a few months ago. But with that in hand, the metrics around ESG, the environmental, the social, the governance, like the scoring specifically here in the US as well as in Europe, they are very much attributed to specific water metrics. And I think that's something actually to where I have worked in the past with a few companies, specifically ESG rating companies. And to give you an idea, there's about, say, 150 ESG rated companies out there that aren't corporations, but that are actually the ESG where the analysts sit and people from a higher level set of views go and look at specific corporations and look at, you know, all the different metrics from biodiversity to waste management. And there sits in the E, the water, where we're extremely obviously in, in interested. And those metrics look at filters such as a water strategy, a water plan, where they publish numerical water-related analytics and data. They report on water recycling. And I think these specific metrics are extremely valuable in looking at revenue, in looking at net sales, in looking at where pollutants are. And so even in Europe, and we can jump to where ESG looks quantitatively in the U.S. very differently than what it does in Europe. I think in Europe, you guys follow the SFDR, where there's the environmental, the social and the governance, and following like Article 8 and Article 9, where... You guys are either aligned or not, but those follow more, I believe, where facilities are. So like where water stressed facilities are and if those sites actually have a specific water score and why they will or won't be built on that specific site from then on. It's high level, but like Michael's attributing to, it all runs its course within where we're trying to lead in this session and in in actually our specific finance session, looking at how finance and the SMP are all really tied to industry, not necessarily water, but inside of where the E is within industry. I think that makes for a good tour of the content of your session. I'd like, before closing that deep dive, to understand a bit what happens before and after. How is it for the before? Because we are now some, as we record, I guess we're about two weeks before the actual conference. And I'm wondering, is it like Nirvana style, come as you are? Or would you expect people to come in prepared with questions, having read stuff? Or how do you want to take them? Do you take them off guard or prepared? Within this specific AGU session, these attendees are going to be quite, I would say, prepared to attend our session because of the 25,000 people attending. I think they've got a tight schedule. So 
it's very much of like Tuesday, they're going to attend from 10 to 11, this specific session. Ours is Friday, it's December, I believe 16th, and it's all day session they gave us, which was nice because we had quite a few authors that wanted to speak. And so we will have a whole day session with sort of a preview, you know, as, as far as what we're going to actually entail for the entire day. And then we jump into the actual sessions and panels. We have breaks in between. Um, and then obviously at the end of concluding remarks in, you know, what we covered that day and then what is to follow regarding how we're going to keep in touch with AGU and what the spring meeting is going to entail with the three of us and then specific partnerships that we're looking to actually like partner with. So as far as sort of that day goes, in general, Michael, I believe, is leading the session on Tuesday. And Michael, remind me of the time, I think it's 10 to 1130 or... The pre-session introduction to the main session is Tuesday from Tuesday, December 13th from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And we're going to have a number of great guests from around the world to help our expert audience that is very savvy and well-prepared to see exactly how their work can connect with and benefit from our main session on Friday, because the key is that we bring value to the table for anybody who attends. We want you to walk away with something worth it and we want to continue working with you in the future and keep the conversation going what will tell you that you had the intended impact after the session after the conference after everybody went home went through the holiday season and had some time to think of what you've shared what you've ignited in them what do you want them to start off fresh in 2023 what what should drastically change that will tell you you've succeeded i think it it comes with feedback first of all I think it comes with action second, but as far as we're wanting our multiple day sessions to go with AGU and who actually attend is to form our larger community around what we've been thinking for the last few years. And it doesn't have to be, say, these drastic changes, but it does have to have a rolling ball effect. And I think between the three of us and Johnny, Michael and I, we're extremely excited to open the door and be able to gather feedback on where we've gone, what we're coming up against, what other people's feedback is, and to where we can actually move forward. Because I think that's sort of one of the main pieces where I see people just in general don't have as much ability to gather feedback to say, let's have positive change, let's have negative change. But I think that's sort of where in between these sessions is actually where we're going to ask for feedback. So it's very much going to be a conversational day, as opposed to us just speaking to them and having our panelists just speak to them from this sort of hierarchy stance. Yes, exactly, Lauren. That's exactly how I see it. People are interested and engaged and want to do something. And what could that turn into after the holiday season? And I'm looking forward now, I'm looking towards the future. I could see people, experts in the academic sector and government saying, I see value in solving this problem. Maybe I will engage in a form of social entrepreneurship with somebody I met at our session. Because as Lauren said, this is not a dictation. This is not from on high, you know, giving a message from the top of the mountain. This is very much on a level playing field saying, how can we work together? So building the infrastructure for water innovation collaboration as a way to adapt to climate change. I personally want to see people executing on their thoughts and 
developing tools and coming together to solve this problem persistently. So let our session be a beginning, a way to connect and a way to move forward. Well, that makes for a perfect roundup for that deep dive. So thank both of you for that very interesting perspective, I have to say. It's a pity I won't be in, in Chicago. I would have been happy to, to, <laughs> to, to see all of that rolling out live. If that's fine for both of you, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. Sure. I don't think you would have wanted to come out <laughs> to Chicago in December. It's going to be <laughs> quite cold. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I've been... <laughs> now let me give you a fully uninteresting behind the scenes. First, I'm a big fan of everything which is cold. And my favorite TV show when I was a kid was Emergency Room. And I was always very jealous because they always had snow and Chicago seemed to be like the place where there's always snow. So to me, Chicago is like the dream city for that. Love it. George Amazing. Clooney. It's time for the rapid fire questions. For the rapid fire question that I proposed to, to, to you is that I will be sending some of them to, to you, Lauren, some of them to Michael. And there's one where mm -hmm. I want to have both of your inputs. I'll start with you, Lauren. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Okay, I've been working on a long-term project for the last actually few months. It's going to progress into the next few years and it's involving the lessening snowpack around the United States. It's involving ice climbing and it's involving innovative climate and water technologies. So to be soon as to the unveiling of what's going to happen. Okay, let me mark your calendar here. The day you want to unveil that one, that microphone is open. I'm looking <laughs> forward. <laughs> Michael, can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Which one? Let's see. One thing I've learned the hard way is how to communicate with the business community on the topic of water. Because most times you interact with somebody who is from the business community proper, you know, and you say, hey, water matters. Like, why? You know, why does water matter? Why do I care? You know, it's everywhere. We've got plenty of it. And the trick there is connecting water to what they want, which is typically some sort of profit or gain. So what I've learned the hard way is to start with the end. You know, you don't have three minutes for an elevator pitch. You've got 15 seconds to get someone interested because nobody wants to waste their time. So I've learned not to waste business people's time when it comes to water. Lauren, is there something you are doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Hopefully not wearing as many hats as I do. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Michael, what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I would look at the water startup sector. I would keep your eyes wide open and attentive to who's getting funded and what amounts and what kinds of technologies are generating sales, maybe not profits. I would be, I would look at companies that are starting to sell what I call a water optimization technologies. You know, we're thinking about things like, I'm thinking about things like Hydroloop, any kind of water recycling system. I would be looking at that for household use. I'd also be looking longer term at industrial water supply systems, especially atmospheric water generation systems, because they fill in gaps in water supply that can't be met with natural water or desalination. So the water sector is growing as we speak, but in a strangely quiet way. It's almost as if people don't see it happening. It's so big and all around us. So look at water startups and look at them very hard and keep focused on them because I see tremendous growth in that area. For my last rapid fire question, that's the one which is for both of you. So you both have a chance to go at it. Lauren, you just said you want to have 
less hats, still I'm giving you one more. So next year, there's this big UN Water Conference in New York, the first in 50 years. And uh, there have been lots of comments about the agenda and some are amazed, some are pretty pissed at the agenda, but the agenda isn't fully framed. So we still have a chance to put topics on the agenda. And I'm wondering if you had to put one, your one-on-one -on -one with Hank Ovik, the special envoy, which is writing that agenda, and you get a chance to put that specific topic on the agenda and it will stay there. What is that one topic you pick? I think wastewater reuse. I think it can tailor it actually into so many pieces in our life from how we, as Michael sort of reiterated earlier on, how we push away pain and how we push away sort of stuff that is unpleasurable. I got to say wastewater, which I've done contracts now in wastewater. It's the bare bone of our systems. It's where we're not physically seeing any of our wastewater. We go away and it's actually where a lot of the most progress is being done, specifically on the West Coast, but across the United States. And I think when we get that into our mind that we're actually going to be using and reusing our water is going to be a whole cyclical type of revelation for the everyday consumer, even though it is maybe one of the most disturbing pieces that, that we can sort of hold in ourselves. It can go into narratives around our background. It can go into groundwater. It can go into all different types of technologies. But I see wastewater reuse as sort of this topic that's lingering in the background. But frankly, so many clients across the board have brought that up to me. And it's the one issue that actually is lagging in terms of the regulation, in terms of the talk, in terms of where we're going to place our future in. That's definitely a topic which I would love to see on the agenda. So, so thank you for adding it. And uh, Michael, same question to you. What would you put on the agenda? This one might sound extremely boring, but I would love to hear more about groundwater and atmospheric water regulation frameworks. Now, why do I want to hear more about that? Because as more and more people are born and more and more people rely on these emerging areas of water supply, we need to know how to regulate and manage them effectively. So how we craft policy on a global scale towards groundwater and atmospheric water resources will impact how the future of the water technology landscape evolves. Because we can't just keep taking as much as we want whenever we want. It has to be in line with how the water cycle shifts and its dynamic nature. And good regulation respects that. Sounds like a key topic I'd like to see on the agenda as well. So I would probably vote for you as special envoy as well. So you both of you got a new job, thanks to me. <laughs> <laughs> Another job. Well, it's been a pleasure to spend that bit more of an hour with you. I have to say, I'm really looking forward to your session. Do you know if there's going to be any live streaming or is it really what happens in Chicago stays in Chicago? It's virtual. You know, there's virtual I believe there's too. lives. Yeah, exactly. So I will put the links in the show notes so that if some people got teased like me by, by what you shared today, that they would have the pleasure also if they cannot make it to Chicago to, to join you online. Michael, I think I've tried to push you in a corner in the, in the opening of this discussion, but I still mean it. If, if you have big news to share anytime soon in the future, that microphone is open to you. I'd be happy to cover that and do like your personal update five seasons after you, your first personal update on that microphone. And Lauren, I mean it with all my hurts today that you want to share about your project, which you teased me when we 
met physically <laughs> yeah. and which you teased again today, I'm really <laughs> fully into to get the ins and outs about it. So thanks, both of you, and I wish you all the best in Chicago. We appreciate being on. It's been a pleasure once again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.